And with the playing of our theme, we'd like to welcome you to another edition of The Jazz Show on CITR FM 101.9 or on your computer, www.citr.ca. My name's Gavin Walker, and, uh, you know, I've been told um, that on September 23rd, the end of the world is coming, but I'm going to bank on that not happening, and uh, we hope to be here next Monday as well, and maybe the following one, and the following one after that, etc. Anyway, <laughs> with that out of the way, um, one thing about uh, uh, all these predictions about the end of the world, it's always half an hour later in Newfoundland. So uh, whatever time is predicted, uh, Newfoundland gets a half an hour of grace. That's right. Anyway, uh, with that nonsense out of the way, we'd like to get to our jazz feature this evening. We have lots of wonderful music to play for you, but this is uh, going to be part two of our traditional jazz show back-to-school feature. Last week we had... The great alto saxophone virtuoso, band leader, raconteur, uh, Julian Cannonball Adderley, with a wonderful recording that he made uh, where he documents up to, anyway, um, the year 1960, the history of, of jazz music. And, of course, many of the things he talked about are still very, very valid today because uh, jazz music is a music of tradition and um, uh so and also, of course, it's an art form and and, uh, and that sort of thing. So, anyway, uh, this week is a slightly different uh, documentary. It's going to be narrated by the great maestro Leonard Bernstein. Now, Leonard Bernstein, of course, covered so many areas of music. He was a composer, conductor, uh, virtuoso, pianist. Um, but he was a raconteur and, and a communicator. Like Cannonball Adderley, he believed in communicating with people. And he could take a very complex musical idea and, and make it simple for somebody who has no musical training. And they would understand that idea. Now, th- this is difficult for a lot of, um, a lot of people. He never took an, uh, Bernstein never took an academic approach uh, when he was discussing music. He did lots of TV programs um, taking apart classical music, of course, and trying to make it more acceptable to people that were unfamiliar with it. And uh, he succeeded on all counts. This album is really unique because it involves the music that this show is concerned with, and that's jazz music. Leonard Bernstein loved and respected jazz music, unlike a lot of people from the classical field who kind of looked down on jazz. Bernstein never did. Um, he respected all the artists that, that played it and realized that uh, they were virtuosos too and uh, it, within their own fields, and jazz was a, a unique um, and totally North American art form. Sure, it derived influences from other sources, of course, but came together in America. 
Art Blakey often said that, too. He said, no America, no jazz. It, it, it was uh, a melting pot of musical um, concepts, and it still is. And uh, jazz has always absorbed outside influences and brought it in and retained its character as jazz. Anyway, this uh, album was recorded like uh, Cannonball Adderley's album last week uh, a number of years ago, and there's a few um, rather humorous dated references in here. Not 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 about the music, uh, just simple statements that uh, Bernstein made that kind of reflected the times. So they're unintentionally funny, and, and I think you'll pick you'll pick up on them. But other than that, he avoids the uh, the whole historical perspective of jazz and tells you what jazz is and what jazz isn't uh, in a very simple way. And then part two, he takes uh, an old song that so many jazz musicians played and, and takes it apart, and, and it shows you how that song came together, and then you'll hear uh, different interpretations of that song by uh, a wide variety of very famous musicians. Some of the musicians you're going to hear uh, on here are Duke Ellington, Bessie Smith, Louis Armstrong, uh, Miles Davis, uh, Phil Woods, Coleman Hawkins. These are all major jazz names, and, and uh, the musical examples on here are all played by uh, uh, these various people. So sit back and enjoy because it is, um, if you've never heard this recording before, it'll open up some doors for you. And if you have heard it before, there may be some doors that uh, you forgot about, and uh, you'll be reminded of them when you hear this uh, particular recording. It's entertaining and informative as well. So without further ado, our jazz feature this evening, part two of our traditional back-to-school uh, jazz feature, Leonard Bernstein, and What is Jazz? Now anyone hearing this music, anyone on any civilized part of this earth, east or west, pole to pole, would immediately say, that is jazz. We are going to try to investigate jazz, not through the usual historical approach of up the river from New Orleans, etc., which has become all too familiar, but through approaching the music itself. We are going to examine the musical innards of jazz to find out, once and for all, what it is that sets it apart from all other music. Jazz is a very big word. It covers a multitude of sounds, all the way from the earliest blues. Oh, I ain't got no mammy now. Oh, I ain't got no mammy now. To Dixieland bands. <laughs> Charleston bands, to swing bands,
to Boogie Woogie, to Crazy Bop, to Cool Bop, and much more. It is all jazz, and I love it all. I love it because it's an original kind of emotional expression, in that it is never wholly sad or wholly happy. Even the blues has a robustness and a hard-boiled quality that never lets it become sticky sentimental no matter how self-pitying the words are. I woke up this morning with an awful aching head. I woke up this morning with an awful aching head. My new man had left me just a room in a And on the other hand, the gayest, wildest jazz always seems to have some hint of pain in it. Listen to this trumpet and see what I mean. That is what intrigues me about jazz. It's unique, a form of expression all its own. Then I love it for its humor. It really plays with notes. We always speak of playing music. We play Brahms, we play Bach. It's a term perhaps more properly applied to tennis. But jazz is real play. It fools around with notes, so to speak. It has fun with them. It is therefore entertainment in its truest sense. But I find I have to defend jazz to those, for instance, who say it is low class. But then all music has low class origins since it comes from folk music, which is necessarily earthy. After all, Haydn minuets are only a refinement of simple, rustic German dances, and so are Beethoven scherzos. An aria in a Verdi opera can often be traced back to the most basic Neapolitan fisherman. Besides, there has always been a certain shadow of indignity around music, particularly around the players of music. I suppose it is due to the fact that historically, players of music seem to lack the dignity of composers of music. This is especially true of jazz, which is almost completely a player's art, depending as it does on improvisation rather than on composition. This means that the player of jazz is himself the real composer, which gives him a creative and therefore more dignified status. Well, then there are those who argue that jazz is loud. Well, so are Sousa marches, and we don't hear complaints about them. Besides, it's not always loud. It is very often extremely delicate, in fact. Perhaps this objection stems from the irremediable situation of what is, after all, a kind of brass band playing in a room too small for it. But that is not the fault of jazz itself. However, the main argument against jazz has always been that it is not art. I think it is art, and a very special one. But before we can argue about whether it is or not, we must know what it is, 
and so I propose to share with you some of the things I know and love about jazz. Let's take that blues we heard before and find out what it's made of. Now, what are the elements that make that jazz? Well, first of all, there is the element of melody. Western music in general is based, melodically speaking, on scales. Major, minor, and some others. But there is a special scale for jazz, which is a variation of the regular major scale you all practiced as kids. In jazz, this scale gets modified three different times. The third note gets lowered from this to this. The fifth note gets lowered from this to this. And the seventh note gets lowered from this to this. Those three changed notes are referred to as blue notes. So instead of a phrase, which ordinarily would go something like this, which is not particularly jazzy, we would get, using blue notes, this phrase, which begins to show a jazz quality. But this so-called jazz scale is used only melodically. In the harmony underneath, we still use our old unflatted notes, and that causes a dissonance to happen between the tune and the chords. You hear that dissonance? But this very dissonance has a true jazz sound. Jazz pianists are always using those two dissonant notes together, and there's a reason for it. They are really searching for a note that isn't there at all, but one which lies somewhere between the two notes, between this and this. And the note is called a quarter tone. The quarter tone comes straight from Africa, which is the cradle of jazz, and where quarter tones are everyday stuff. We can produce one on a wind instrument or a stringed instrument or with the voice, but on the piano we have to approximate it by playing together the two notes on each side of it. The real note is somewhere in that crack between them. Now let's see if I can sing you a quarter tone, if you will forgive my horrid voice. Here is an African Swahili tune I once heard. The last note of it will be a quarter tone. Now that last note sounds as if it's terribly out of tune, but actually it is a real note in another musical language. In jazz, it is right at home. Now, just to show how important these so-called blue notes are to jazz, let's hear that same blues played without them, using only the plain white notes of the major scale. There is something missing, isn't there? It just isn't jazz. 
But even more important than melody in jazz is the element of rhythm. Rhythm is the first thing you associate with the word jazz, after all. There are two aspects to this point, the first being the beat. The beat is what you hear when the drummer's foot is beating the bass drum, or when the bass player is plucking his bass, or even when the pianist is kicking the pedal with his foot. All this is elementary. The beat goes on from beginning to the end of any number, two or four of them to a bar, never changing in tempo or in meter. This is the heartbeat, so to speak, of jazz. But more involved and more interesting is the rhythm going on over the beat, rhythmic figures which depend on something called syncopation, a word you have certainly heard, but maybe were never quite sure of. A good way to understand syncopation might be to think of a heartbeat that goes along steadily and at a moment of shock misses a beat. It is that much of a physical reaction. Technically, syncopation means either the removal of an accent where you expect one or the placing of an accent where you least expect one. In either case, there is the element of surprise and shock. The body responds to this shock either by compensating for the missing accent or by reacting to the unexpected one. Now, where do we expect accents? Always on the first beat of a bar, on the downbeat. If there are two beats in a bar, one is going to be strong and two is going to be weak, exactly as in marching. Left, right, left, right, left, right. Even if there are four beats in a bar, it is still like marching, because although we all have only two legs, the sergeant still counts out in four. Hop, two, three, four, hop two, three, four. There is always that natural accent on one. Take it away, and there is a simple syncopation. One, two, three, four. <coughs> two, three, four. <coughs> two, three, four. You see that that missing accent on the first beat evokes a body response. Now, the other way to make a syncopation is exactly the reverse. Put an accent on a weak beat, the second or the fourth, where it does not belong, like this. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. This is what we all do when we listen to jazz, clapping our hands or snapping our fingers on the offbeat. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Now, those are the basic facts of syncopation, and now we can understand its subtler aspects. Between one beat and another, there lie shorter and even weaker beats. And when these get accents, the shock is correspondingly greater. Since the weaker the beat you accentuate, the greater the surprise. Let's take eight of these fast beats in a bar. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. The normal accent would fall on one and five. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Now instead, let's put a big accent on a real weak one, which is the fourth. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 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 Okay, boys, thank you. As you see, we got a pure rumba rhythm simply by accentuating the weak fourth beat. Of course, the strongest syncopation of all would obviously be obtained by doing both things at once, putting an accent on a weak beat and taking away the accent from the strong. So now we will do this double operation put a wallop on the weak fourth beat and remove the strong fifth beat entirely, and we get 
One, two, three, four, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four. begins to sound like the Congo, doesn't it? Well, now that you've heard what syncopation is like, let's see what that same blues we heard before would sound like without it. I think you'll miss that essential element, the very life of jazz. Sounds square, doesn't it? Well, that takes care of two very important elements, melody and rhythm. But jazz would not be jazz without its special tonal colors, the actual sound values you hear. These colors are many, but they mostly stem from the quality of the Negro singing voice. For instance, when Louis Armstrong plays his trumpet, he is only doing another version of his own voice. Listen to an Armstrong record like I can't give you anything but love, and compare the trumpet solo with the vocal solo. You can't miss the fact that they're by the same fellow. I can't give you anything but love, baby. That's the only thing I'm plenty of, baby. Dream my wild. Now the trumpet version. But the Negro voice has engendered other imitations, too. The saxophone is in itself a kind of imitation of it, breathy, a little hoarse, with a vibrato or tremor in it. Just to show you what a vibrato is, let's hear that sax again without one. Then there are all the different growls and rasps we get by putting mutes on the horns. Here, for example, is a trumpet with a cup mute. And now with a wah-wah mute. And now listen to a trombone with a plunger mute. There are other tonal colors that derive from Afro-Cuban sources, like the bongo drums, the maracas, the Cuban cowbell, and all the others. Then there are the colors that have an oriental flavor, the vibraphone, various symbols, and so on. All these special colorations make their contribution to the total quality of jazz. You have certainly all heard jazz tunes played straight by non-jazz orchestras and wondered what was missing. 
there certainly is something missing, the coloration. Let's now hear that same blues sung straight, that is, without any jazz shading at all. Not the real thing, is it? There is one more jazz element, one which may surprise some of you who think jazz is not an art. I refer to form. Did you know, for example, that the blues is a classical form? Most people use the word blues to mean any song that is blue or torchy or low down or breast beating, like Stormy Weather, for example. But Stormy Weather is not a blues and neither is Moanin' Low nor The Man I Love nor even The Birth of the Blues. They are all popular songs. The blues is basically a strict poetic form combined with music. It is based on a rhymed couplet with the first line repeated. For example, Billie Holiday sings, my man don't love me, treats me awful mean. Oh, he's the lowest man I've ever seen. But when she sings it, she repeats the first line. So it goes, my man don't love me, treats me awful mean. I said, my man don't love me, treats me awful mean. Oh, he's the lowest man that I've ever seen. That is one stanza of blues. A full blues is nothing more than a succession of such stanzas for as long as the singer wishes. Did you notice that the blues couplet is, of all things, in iambic pentameter? My man don't love me, treats me awful mean. Oh, he's the lowest man I've ever seen. This is about as classic as one can get. It means that you can take any rhymed couplet in iambic pentameter, from Shakespeare, for example, and make a perfect Macbeth blues. I will not be afraid of death and bane till Burnham Forest come to Dunsinane. It makes a lovely blues. I will not be afraid of death or bane. I said I will not be afraid of death or bane Till Burnham Forest come to Dunsinane Now if you've been very attentive, you've noticed that each of those three lines got four bars apiece, making in all a 12-bar stanza. But the voice itself sang only about half of each four-bar line, I will not be afraid of death and bane, and the rest was filled up by the orchestra. This filling up is called a break. And here in the break, we have the origin of the instrument imitating the voice, the very soil in which jazz grows. Perhaps the essential sound of jazz is Louis Armstrong improvising the breaks in a blues sung by Bessie Smith. From this kind of voice imitation, all instrumental improvising has since developed. Listen to that sound. My mama says I'm a reckless man. Daddy says I'm wild. My mama says I'm a reckless 
Did you notice the instrument that is accompanying the singer? It is a harmonium, that wheezy little excuse for an organ which we all associate with hymn tunes. But far from being out of place in the blues, this instrument is especially appropriate, since the chords in the blues must always be exactly the same three chords we all know from hymn tunes. These chords must always remain in a strict classical pattern, pure and simple. Try to vary them and the blues quality flies out the window. Well, there you have it. Melody, rhythm, tone color, form, harmony. In each department, there are special features that make jazz instead of just music. Let's now put them all together and hear a full-blown, all-out, happy blues. Oh, did you know that blues could be happy? Just listen. By this time, I've probably given you the impression that jazz is nothing but blues. Not at all. I've only used the blues to investigate jazz because it embodies the various elements of jazz in so clear and pure a way. But the rest of jazz is concerned with applying these same elements to something called the popular song. The popular song, too, is a form and has certain strict patterns. Popular songs are in either two-part or three-part form. By far the most numerous are in the three part. You all know this form, of course, from hearing it so much. It is simple as pie. Anyone can write one. Take Sweet Sue, for instance. All you need, really, is the first eight bars, which in the trade are called the front strain. Now the song is practically written, since the whole thing will be only 32 bars long, four groups of eight bars apiece. Now the second eight is the same exactly as the first. Making 16 bars and we're already half finished. Now the next eight bars, which is called the release, or the bridge, or just simply the middle part. This must be different music, but it doesn't matter if it's very good or not, since most people don't remember it too well anyway. and then the same old front strain all over again. And it's finished. 32 bars and a classic forever. Easy, isn't it? But Sweet Sue is still not jazz. A popular song doesn't become jazz until it is improvised on. And there you have the real core of all jazz, improvisation. Remember I said that jazz was a player's art rather than a composer's? Well, this is the key to the whole problem. It is the player who, by improvising, makes jazz. He uses the popular song as a kind of dummy to hang his notes on. He dresses it up in his own way, and it comes out an original. So the pop tune, in acquiring a new dress, 
changes its personality completely, like many people who behave one way in blue jeans and in a wholly different way in dinner clothes. Some of you may object to this dressing up, you who say, let me hear the melody and not all this embroidery. But until you accept this principle of improvisation, you will never accept or understand jazz itself. What does improvising mean? It means that you take a tune, keep it in mind with its harmony and all, and then, as they used to say, just go to town or make it up as you go along. You go to town by adding ornaments and figurations or by making real old-fashioned variations, just as Mozart and Beethoven did. Let me show you a little of how Mozart did it, and then you may understand better how Errol Garner does it. Mozart took a well-known nursery rhyme, which he knew as A vous direz je maman, and which we know as Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, or as a way of singing the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, and so on. Now, Mozart makes a series of variations on this tune. One of them begins... Then another. Another one begins. And yet another. They are all different pieces, yet they are all in one way or another that same tune. The jazz musician does exactly the same thing. There are infinite possible versions of Sweet Sue, for example. The clarinet player might improvise one chorus of it this way. Now he could have done that in any number of ways, and if I asked him to do it again tomorrow morning, it would come out a whole other piece. But it would still be Sweet Sue, and it would still be jazz. In fact, let's ask him to try it again and see how different it is. Now we come to the most exciting part of jazz, for me at any rate, simultaneous improvising. This happens when two or more musicians improvise on the same tune at the same time. Neither one knows exactly what the other is going to do, 
but they listen to each other and pick up phrases from each other and sort of talk together. What ties them together is the chords, the harmony of Sweet Sue. Over this harmony, they play two different melodic lines at the same time, which in musical terms makes a kind of accidental counterpoint. This is the germ of what is called the jam session. Now the trumpet is going to join with the clarinet in a double improvisation on Sweet Sue and see if you can distinguish the two melodic lines. The business of improvising together gave rise to the style called Dixieland, which is constantly having a big revival. One of the most exhilarating sounds in all music is that of a Dixieland band blaring out its final chorus, all stops out, with everyone improvising together. Here is that Dixieland chorus of Sweet Sue. see how exciting this can be. But jazz is not all improvisation, not by a long shot. Much of it gets written down, and it is then called an arrangement. The great days of arrangements were the 30s, when big startling swing arrangements were showing off the virtuosity of the great bands like Casaloma, Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw, the Dorsey Brothers, and so on. Now jazz is hard to write down, there is no way of notating exactly those quarter tones we talked about, nor the various smears and growls and subtle intonations. Even the rhythms can only be approximated in notation, so that much of the jazz quality is left to the instincts of the player who is reading the music. Still, it does work, because the instincts of those players are so deep and genuine. Let's listen to a good solid swing arrangement of a chorus of Sweet Sue, as we might have heard it back in 1938. Now remember, this arrangement was for dancing. In 1938, we were all dancing, and that brings up the most important point of all. Nobody seems to dance to jazz very much anymore, except for mambo lovers, and they are limited to those who are athletic enough to do it. What has happened to dancing? We used to have a new dance practically every month. The Lindy Hop, the Shag, the Peabody, the Big Apple, Boogie, Susie Q. Now we have only dances you have to take lessons to do. What does this mean? Simply that the emphasis is on listening these days instead of on singing and dancing. This change had to happen. For one thing, the tremendous development of the recording industry has taught us to listen in a way we never did before. But even more important, 
with the advent of more complicated jazz like swing and boogie-woogie and bop, our interest has shifted to the music itself and to the virtuosity of its performance. That is, we are interested in what notes are being played, how well, how fast, and with what originality. You can't listen to bop intelligently and dance too, murmuring sweet nothings into your partner's ear. You have to listen as hard as you can to hear what's happening. So in a way, jazz has begun to be a kind of chamber music, an advanced, sophisticated art mainly for listening, full of influences of Bartok and Stravinsky, and very, very serious. Let's listen for a moment to this kind of arrangement of our old friend Sweet Sue. Now whether you call that weird piece cool or crazy or futuristic or modernistic or whatever, the fact is that it is bordering on serious concert music. The arrangement begins to be a composition. Take away the beat and you might not even know it's jazz at all. In fact, let's hear a little of it without the beat and see. <laughs> What we are hearing might perfectly well be a concert piece. Why is it jazz? Because it is played by jazz men on jazz instruments and because it has its roots in the soil of jazz and not of Bach. I think the key word to all this is the word cool. It means what it implies. Jazz used to advertise itself as hot. Now the heat is off. The jazz player has become a highly serious person. He may even be an intellectual. He tends to wear Ivy League clothes, have a crew cut, or wear horn-rimmed glasses. He may have studied music at a conservatory or a university. This was unthinkable in the old days. Our new jazz man plays more quietly with greater concentration on musical values, on tone quality, technique. He knows Bartok and Stravinsky, and his music shows it. He tends to avoid big, flashy endings, the music just stops when it is over. As he has become cool, so have his listeners. They don't dance. They listen respectfully as if to chamber music and applaud politely at the end. At jazz nightclubs all over the world, you find audiences who do not necessarily have a drink in their hands and who do not beat out the rhythm and carry on as we did when I was a boy. It is all rather cool and surprisingly controlled considering that jazz is essentially an emotional experience. Where does this lead us in our investigation? To some pretty startling conclusions. There are those who conclude from all this that here in the new jazz is the real beginning of serious American music, that at last the American composer has his own expression. Of course, when they say this, they are intimating that all American symphonic works up to now are nothing but personalized imitations of the European symphonic tradition from Mozart to Mahler. Sometimes, I must say, I think they have a point. At any rate, we can be sure of one thing. 
that the line between serious music and jazz grows less and less clear. We have serious composers writing in the jazz idiom, and we have jazz musicians becoming serious composers. Perhaps we've stumbled on a theory. But theory or no theory, jazz goes on finding new paths, sometimes reviving old styles, but in either case, looking for freshness. In any art that is really vital and searching, splits are bound to develop, arguments arise, and factions form. Just as in painting, the non-objectivists are at sword's point with the representationalists, and in poetry, the imagists declaim against the surrealists, so in jazz music, we have a major battle between the traditionalists and the progressives. These latter are the ones who are trying hardest to get away from the patterns of half a century, experimenting with new sonorities, using note relationships that are not common to the old jazz, and in general, trying to keep jazz alive and interesting by broadening its scope. Let us see if we can feel the essential difference between the two schools by listening to a progressive jam session on you guessed it, Sweet Sue. This style will embody all the elements we have discussed as distinguishing jazz from all other music, but will use them in a new and different way.
Well, we've heard jazz as it comes from the past, and we've had a sample of what might turn out to be the future of jazz. What we're hearing now is jazz in the present tense, still a fresh and vital art with a solid past and an exciting future. And that was Leonard Bernstein, the great maestro, narrating what is jazz, and thereby ending part two of our back-to-school traditional presentation on the jazz show. And, of course, that last piece of music you heard it sounded so modern uh, compared to um, almost everyone else on, on there. That was the Miles Davis Quintet. That was actually recorded in 1956. And, of course, the quintet included Miles Davis. That was his first great quintet. Uh, that was Miles on trumpet, of course, with John Coltrane on tenor saxophone and Red Garland on piano and Paul Chambers on bass and Philly Joe Jones on drums. And that was their abstract version of uh, the tune that uh, Bernstein took apart and put back together and gave you all the variations of Sweet Sue, old standard tune that was uh, a big part of the uh, musical repertoire at one time. Still is played today. It's actually a, a good tune to improvise on, obviously. So we hope you enjoyed that uh, um, educational and uh, entertaining uh, feature on The Jazz Show. And next September, we'll do it all again. So <laughs> come back around if you missed anything. Anyway, uh, we hope you enjoyed that. And uh, those of you that have heard it before, maybe it opened some uh, different doors for you. And those of you who have never heard it before, um, Perhaps it will open uh, some jazz doors for you. New ones. You are listening to The Jazz Show on CITR-FM 101.9 or on your computer, www.citr.ca. My name's Gavin Walker, and we'll be right back with some live music recorded in Paris by Art Blakey and his Jazz Messengers, his favorite edition of that band. So, we'll be back in a few moments. We don't need to tell you that Vancouver has a housing problem. Mass evictions. Mass evictions. Unfair rent increases. What happened to rent control and protection from unfair eviction? If these or other housing matters concern you, you may be interested in joining the Vancouver Tenants Union. For more information, visit tenantsunion.ca. You're listening to CITR 101.9, broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus, located on the traditional, unceded, Coast Salish territory of the Hunkaminam-speaking Musqueam people. We're going to uh, take you to Paris, France, and... May the 13th, 1961, and um, a couple of incredible performances 
by Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers. And uh, this, was, this was a particularly hot night for the group. And, of course, um, I've told this story several times, but uh, I did uh, many years ago. I have a conversation with Art Blakey, and I asked him, I said, I know this is going to sound really stupid, man, but do you have a favorite edition of the Jazz Messengers? And, of course, he, he looked at me. He said, well, all of them, man, all of them. And um, I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> I've blown it now. He's gonna, uh, Art's going to get up and walk away. And then he, he looked at me and he gave me a big smile. And he says, especially the one with Lee Morgan, Wayne Shorter, Bobby Timmons, Jimmy Merritt. You know that one. And, of course, I laughed and, and uh, you know, that answered my question, of course. So that's who we're going to hear, the great virtuoso trumpeter Lee Morgan, who was just in his early 20s on here, and Wayne Schroeder, of course, who was young as well. And uh, Wayne was the musical director of the band. Bobby Timmons composed some of the great tunes uh, that the Messengers played. A wonderful composer and uh, incredible, um, still underrated piano uh, player to this day. I love Bobby Timmons playing. And Jimmy Merritt was the workhorse of the band, as Blakey always called his bass players. And, of course, the mighty Art Blakey on drums. So we're going to hear two compositions by the Jazz Messengers, and both of them were written by Bobby Timmons. The first one is a famous piece of music that uh, had words put to it later on. It's a tune called Dat Dare. And the second piece of music is called So Tired. So here then, Paris, May 1961, Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers.
Recorded in Paris in May of 1961 at the uh, Théâtre Olympia. And that, of course, was Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. The edition featuring the great Lee Morgan on trumpet, Wayne Shorter, the musical director on tenor saxophone, the composer of those two pieces of music, Bobby Timmons at the piano, Jimmy Merritt on bass, and, of course... Art Blakey on drums. And the two pieces of music we heard, uh, Dat Dare was the first one, and the second one was entitled So Tired, one of the great editions of Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers. And uh, as quiet as it's kept, his favorite. All right. We're going to uh, continue with some uh, different music in a very few moments. We have a couple of messages to play for you, and we'll be right back. You are listening to The Jazz Show on CITR-FM 101.9 or on your computer, www.citr.ca. My name is Gavin Walker, and we shall return. Hey there. This ad caught your attention. It also caught the attention of the coolest people from Squamish to Bellingham. Music fans, students, and members of various cultural communities. If you want your ad to do the same, advertise with CITR and Discorder. If you've got a rad new ad or just something you want to share, whether in print, on air, or online, promote your wares, services, or events with us. Contact us at advertising at citr.ca or call 604-822-4342. Visit CITR.ca for rates, information, and packages. This is the end of our ad, and if you're still here, we must be doing something right. UBC's Museum of Anthropology displays long-term and visiting exhibits of indigenous art from around the world, and guided tours are free. Our permanent collection features one of the world's finest exhibits of Northwest Coast First Nations art. Our collection includes 36,000 ethnographic pieces, 535,000 archaeological pieces, and over 600 pieces in the Kroner Ceramics Gallery. There's a lot to take in. Luckily at the Museum of Anthropology, final exams are always take home. If you've never checked out this world-class facility, now's your chance. The Museum of Anthropology is located right on campus and free for all UBC students and faculty. Come enjoy our collection and resources. <laughs> it has changed. It seemed uh, uh, almost a rapid change from uh, what we had, and uh, it's moved into, uh, it really feels a lot more fall-like now. And um, 
yeah, it certainly has changed. It has cooled down a lot. And um, anyway, this is where it's at. Tonight is mainly cloudy with um, a slight chance of a thunder shower and a 60% chance of kind of regular old rain and with a low of 9 degrees. Then tomorrow, mainly cloudy with a low of 9 and a high of 15 and about a 40% chance of a shower. Then on Wednesday is a mix of sun and cloud with a 60% chance of a shower with a low of 11 and a high of 17. Thursday is a mix of sun and cloud uh, and Friday, both days, a mix of sun and cloud and uh, temperatures between um, 8 and 18. So warming up a little bit, getting very pleasant weather, I can imagine. And Saturday is... Basically more of the same, but there is a 30% chance of a shower there with a low of 8 and a high of 17. And then Sunday, the further outlook is cloudy with a 60% chance of a shower with a low of 9 and a high of 15. So um, a bit of a a change, but, uh, well, we do need some rain. But you know as well as I do, in Vancouver, we're really going to get it eventually, <laughs> and then we're all going to be so sick of it. But anyway, that's the way it is. Back to music. This is an interesting uh, group of musicians. Um, they're all from Toronto. Uh, they all live in Toronto, and they're from different parts of Canada. And they have uh, a band called the Collective Order, and these are all very young players, actually. And None of the names are going to be familiar uh, to you um, unless you know them personally. And uh, they put out a second album, Volume 2 of Collective Order. And uh, the music is extremely high quality and uh, very interesting music. We're going to play uh, a couple of tunes uh, from this album, which has just come out. And uh, it's simply called Collective Order, Volume 2. And the first piece of music is written by a gentleman named Andrew McCash, or McNash, or McCannash. Uh, Anyway, it's one of those strange, um, uh, almost unpronounceable names. Simple, but unpronounceable, at least by me, anyway. Uh, The tune is called Lania Key, and... um, Kind of interesting. It involves uh, some really good trumpet work by uh, Andrew, Andrew uh, uh, McCanch. Yes, McCanch. That's how you pronounce his name. Simple as that. And some nice piano work and uh, some good upright bass work and uh, everything. It's it, it all melts together. It's very nice. Some hand claps and then some uh, vocal effects as well. The second tune is written by uh, Liam Stanley, who plays the guitar. And it's called Space Jam, and it features a, a vocal by a young lady named Laura Swanky and uh, some, some other people on, on here. Again, I don't want to get into all the names because the, they're all people that uh, you have probably um, not really heard of. But uh, the band is called Collective Order, and a lot of these are, are, are very young uh, students, and uh, I guess a lot of them, especially in Toronto, well, it's very much like Vancouver. They live collectively because that's the only way to survive in the big city these days. So I uh, hope you enjoy 
these couple of pieces that we're going to hear.
That was some music by a Toronto group of 
whole bunch of uh, musicians, uh, young players, um, and I thought the music uh, of this album was uh, extremely high quality, and it's uh, the 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 group is called Collective Order, and this is their second volume, and some wonderful uh, young undiscovered musicians, but it shows uh, that the schools um, are really putting out some uh, really, really talented and very, very competent uh, musicians. And of course, uh, young jazz players today kind of take the music in a lot of different directions. And we heard three sort of different concepts uh, from this album. Uh, the first tune we heard was called La Nia Key, and it was written by Andrew McCanch, and he played the trumpet uh, on this one and did some percussion work and a whole bunch of other people on there uh, as well. That was the, the first tune. The second tune uh, was written by a gentleman named Liam Stanley, and he played the guitar and the guitar solo on that tune, and the vocal was by Laura Swanky and uh, some other people uh, on um, bass and drums. And the third tune was probably the most um, authentically um, traditional jazz uh, tune called Medieval Sanctions and written by a young man named Ethan Tilbury. And that featured uh, Connor Newton on tenor saxophone and um, Nebu Johannes on trombone. And uh, a gentleman who is played piano on the first tune, played piano on the third tune, Ewan Farncombe. And Ethan Tilbury was the bassist, and he wrote that tune called Medieval Sanctions. That's tune number three. So we heard uh, Laniaki, Space Jam, and Medieval Sanctions, all from this uh, wonderful album called Collective Order, Volume 2. And if you're interested in uh, finding out a little more about it, um, they have a website, www.collectiveorderjazz.com, all one word, dot com. So uh, you can check them out. Very fine group of uh, young and undiscovered musicians. Uh, you never know. You know, they're all coming out of the schools and, and uh, very, very high uh, competence and uh, ability. So hope you enjoyed that music. We are going to now turn our attention to one of the great vocal groups in jazz. Uh, just a few days ago, John Hendricks, who is still alive and well, 96 years old, and he just celebrated his birthday. And uh, this is a band or a, a vocal group. Probably they set the standard for this kind of thing, and John Hendricks was really the... the um, soul behind this group, um, along with Dave Lambert, who did a lot of the arrangements. And of course, the third person was the wonderful Annie Ross. Lambert, Hendricks, and Ross. And uh, they recorded a whole series of albums for Columbia. So we're, we're just going to play uh, a selection um, from this uh, album. And they're backed up by their trio, uh, which included um, on piano uh, Gilda Mahoney's and Ike Isaacs on bass and Walter Bolden on drums. That was the uh, the basic 
band uh, that backed them up. And sometimes there was uh, horn players that came in as guests and that sort of thing. But uh, they usually worked with the three vocalists and piano, bass, and drums. And Gilda Mahoney's was the main uh, uh, pianist in the band. Wonderful, underrated player. We're going to hear Monin, first of all, written by Bobby Timmons, who we heard just a little while ago. And he wrote this tune, and of course it became a big hit for Art Blakey. And uh, they put words to the tune, and of course it became very famous. So uh, that's what we're going to kick off with. The second tune is, uh, um, this is a later version, but um, it actually is a, one of the most famous tenor saxophone solos by a gentleman named Wardell Gray. And um, Annie Ross put the words to Wardell Gray's tenor saxophone solo, and of course it's called Twisted. Years later, Joni Mitchell made a version of this, but her phrasing wasn't <laughs> quite, quite as jazzy as Annie Ross's, and so this is a funny tune. So we're going to hear Monin, Twisted, and we're going to carry on with some other tunes, and I hope you enjoy our little vacation here with Lambert, Hendricks, and Ross, and we start with Monin. Every morning find me moaning Yes, Lord Cause of all the trouble I see Yes, Lord Life's a losing gamble to me Yes, Lord Cares and woes have got me moaning Yes, Lord Every evening find me moaning Yes, Lord I'm alone and crying the blues Yes, Lord I'm so tired of paying these dues Yes, Lord Everybody knows I'm moaning Yes, Lord Lord, I spent plenty of days and nights Along with my grief, along with my grief Lord, I pray, really, truly pray Somebody will come and make me relief Every morning find me moaning Yes, Lord Cause of all the trouble I see Yes, Lord Life's a losing gamble to me Yes, Lord Cares and woes have got me moaning Yes, Lord Find me moaning. Yes, Lord. I'm alone and crying the blues. Yes, Lord. I'm so tired of paying these dues. Yes, Lord. Everybody knows I'm moaning. Yes, Lord. Lord, I try, really and truly try to find some relief. Find some relief. Lord, I spent plenty of days and nights along with my
My analyst told me what? that I was right out of my head the way he described it. How? He said I'd be better dead than live. I didn't listen to his jive. I knew all along he was all wrong and I knew that he thought what? I was crazy but I'm not. Oh no. Oh no. Told me what? that I was right out of my head. He said I need treatment, yeah. but I'm not that easily led. He said I was the type that was most inclined, went out of his sight to be out of my mind. And he thought I was nuts. nuts. No more ifs or ands or buts. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. They say as a child I appeared a little bit wild with all my crazy ideas, but I knew what was happening. I knew I was a genius. What's so strange when you know that you're a wizard at three? I knew that this was meant to be But I heard little children were supposed to sleep tight That's why I left with the vodka one night My parents got frantic, didn't know what to do But I saw some crazy scenes before I came to Now do you think I was crazy? I may have been only three, but I was swinging They all have today, Graham Bell They all have today, Edison And also what I said So why should I feel sorry if they just couldn't understand the reason logic that went on in my head. I had a friend, it was a thing, though, to love them loving me when I refused to ride on all the double-decker buses, all because there was no driver on the top. No driver on the top. She must be out of her My analyst told me that I was right out of my head, the way he described it. He said I'd be better dead than alive. I didn't listen to his jive. I knew all along he was all wrong, and I knew that he thought I was crazy, but I'm not. Oh, no. Told me that I was right out of my head, but I said, Dear doctor, yeah. I think that it's you instead, cause I have got a thing that's unique and new. It proves that I'll have the last laugh on you, cause instead of one head, one head. <laughs> I got two. And you know, two heads are better than one. <laughs>
And you could bet I knew from the first You were my love Come that's when you'll break Running round, so she tried to keep me home. Well, she broke my nose and hid my clothes, but I continued to roam. Then she finally hit my weak spot, threatened to throw my bottle out. Well, from the basement to the rooftop, everybody could hear me shout, Give me that wine, oh, give me that wine, yeah, give me that wine, cause I can't cut loose without my juice. I got to have hot Lucy when I go walking here. Well, one day while crossing the avenue, a big car knocked me down. While I was stretched out, tying up traffic, and crowds came for blocks around. Now the police were searching my pockets before they sent me to the funeral parlor. But when one of them cops took my bottle jack, I jumped straight up and commenced to holler. Give me that wine. Oh, give me that wine. Give me that wine. Cause I can't get well without Muscatel. I only drink for medicinal purposes anyway. Well, now one real dark and dreary night as I was staggering home to bed. Well, the bandit jumped from the shadows and put a blackjack side my head. That cat took my watch, my ring, my money, and I didn't make a sound. But when he reached and got my bottle, you could hear me for blocks around. Give me that wine. Oh, give me that wine. Give me that wine. Beat my head out of shape, but leave my grape. Watch ringing money ain't nothing, don't mess with my wine, Jim. Well, one day my house caught fire while I was laying down sleeping off a nap. And when I woke up, everything was burning with a pop and a crackle and a snap. Now the fireman chopped up my TV set and tore my apartment apart. But when he raised his axe to my bottle, I screamed with all my heart. Give me that wine. Oh, give me that wine. Give me that wine. So I can drink one toast before I roast. No sense in going out half-baked, mine will be all to it. You can take all those Hollywood glamour girls, Lana Turner, Rita Hayworth, Brigitte Ralto, and Lucille Ball, and all them chicks, and line them upside the wall. Put a gigantic jug beside them, and tell me to take my choice, or there'd be no doubt which one I chose the minute I raise my voice. Give me that wine. look fine but I love my wine now some folks like money some like to dance and dine but I'll be happy if you give me that wine give me that wine
Yes, Lambert Hendricks and Ross from their Columbia compilation album called Everybody's Boppin'. And, of course, uh, Dave Lambert, one of, the, uh, one of the arrangers of the band, uh, John Hendricks, who just celebrated two days ago on September 16th his 96th birthday. He's still with us. And the great Annie Ross, of course, uh, Lambert, Hendricks, and Ross, one of the finest vocal groups. They really set the standard for jazz vocal groups. and uh, They, they predated uh, groups like the Manhattan Transfer and the Double Six of Paris and all that kind of stuff. Lambert, Hendricks, and Ross were really pioneers of this whole uh, style, and they were all serious musicians, believe me. We heard, uh, and the band that accompanied them, Gilda Mahoney's on piano, uh, Ike Isaacs on bass, and Walter Bolden on drums. And uh, we heard on the first tune some trumpet, uh, a little trumpet chorus by Harry Edison. And the first tune was Bobby Timmons' Monin. Then we moved to a composition that Annie Ross wrote and wrote the words and everything else uh, based on a very famous tenor saxophone solo by Ward L. Gray and, of course, her tune, Twisted. And we followed that with uh, the amazing John Hendricks doing the vocal um, on Cloudburst. And uh, then we continued with Mr. Hendricks and Give Me That Wine. Okay, and then we went to... uh, the um, vocal group's uh, version of the famous Miles Davis, Gil Evans uh, version of Summertime. And the final tune was uh, a scat, uh, up-tempo thing called Everybody's Boppin' with uh, both Dave Lambert and John Hendricks uh, trading choruses and sounding like uh, tenor saxophone players. Everybody having a ball. Lambert, Hendricks, and Ross. Hope you enjoyed that. You are listening to The Jazz Show on CITR-FM 101.9 or on your computer, www.citr.ca. My name's Gavin Walker, and I always uh, tell you about two wonderful websites. The first one is vancouverjazz.com, and uh, that's a, a nice comprehensive website. You want to find out about some of the musicians here and uh, look around that, that particular site. It's always interesting, and um, there's a lot of information on uh, Vancouver history and uh, all that kind of stuff. You can check it for yourself, vancouverjazz.com. Another extremely important website is the website of the Coastal Jazz and Blues Society. Of course, they have wonderful concerts coming up for the fall season. Uh, Coastal Jazz and Blues, of course, is the organization that produces Vancouver International Jazz Festival every year. And they also are backers of Frankie's Jazz Club downtown on Beattie Street, which has become uh, one of the leading jazz clubs, uh, not only in in Vancouver, but uh, um, on the West Coast. And... um, I know uh, Renee Wurst and Jennifer Scott played there on Saturday and Sunday. Packed, absolutely packed. There were lineups on the street. So, you know, uh, that club is uh, really important. It's, it's kept um, the music uh, really going here in Vancouver, and uh, every, everyone seems to enjoy 
uh, going to Frankie's because the uh, the staff is so great and the, the food is high quality. If if you want to eat the such a selection of uh, alcoholic beverages and non-alcoholic beverages and everything else, first class, and uh, that's what people like. And you're going to pay a little money to get it in. Um, people demand things that are first class and Frankie's the place. So what you can do on this website, this is the Coastal Jazz and Blues website, coastaljazz.ca. You can book, um, you can look at the schedule, uh, which goes on for months and months and find out who you want to hear. There's some international artists coming uh, and uh, some very, very well-known people. So you can check out their schedule. You can book uh, tables, um, make reservations, pay for it, do all that kind of stuff online. So there you go. So that becomes an extremely important website, coastaljazz.ca. And, of course, uh, I always like to mention Pat's Pub down at the Vancouver um, downtown east side, as, as they call it, uh, in the historic Patricia Hotel every Saturday afternoon from 3 to 7, some of the best jazz you're going to hear, and there's absolutely no cover charge. They've maintained that policy for a long time. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, there's easy parking around there, and they also have a lot uh, that you can park on as well, uh, right adjacent to the hotel. So it's not a big problem. People say, downtown east side? (laughs) Come on. It's uh, actually (laughs) probably safer down there than you would be in Caresdale. Anyway, uh, (laughs) whatever. Um, There's some great music at the Patricia Hotel every Saturday afternoon from 3 to 7. And uh, you can check things out and and, uh, get a schedule from down there as to up-and-coming artists coming, uh, etc., etc. So there you go. All right. We're going to change the pace of the music. This is interesting. We're going to hear some music by Thelonious Monk, but not played by Thelonious Monk. This is from, actually, this was quite a a, a rare recording um, for many years. It it came out on uh, very, very small labels, and, well, it still is uh, on rather obscure labels. It's on the M&M label. Um, Not easy to find. But this is an amazing band, one of the great uh, experts, respected by Monk as well, was soprano saxophonist Steve Lacey. He really, really knew Monk's music, and he played with Monk for about six months. Unfortunately, uh, they never made, um, he never made a recording with Monk. There's a couple of uh, uh, live um, recordings around of, of relatively dubious quality with Lacey, with Thelonious Monk, um, but uh, unfortunately, um, they they didn't get into the recording studio at that time because uh, Monk was between contracts. So Lacey joined the Monk Quartet, making it a quintet, uh, and uh, Monk had a lot of respect for Steve Lacey, and of course, Steve Lacey, one of the masters of the soprano saxophone. He really is uh, a pioneer of the modern soprano saxophone. He's the one that inspired John Coltrane to pick up the uh, soprano and add that to uh, his arsenal. So there you go, Steve Lacey. So he had this little band together. 
with trombonist Roswell Rudd, who is still very much with us, bassist Henry Grimes, who is uh, also still with us, and drummer Dennis Charles. Dennis is from the West Indies, as a matter of fact, the Virgin Island. And uh, it's been pretty battered by those hurricanes, but uh, that's where Dennis came from, wonderful drummer. So Steve Lacey, soprano saxophone, Roswell Rudd, trombone, Henry Grimes on bass, Dennis Charles on drums. We're going to hear two tunes. They were recorded at a little place. It was kind of a coffee house full of strange people in New York City called the Phase Two. And this, all of this stuff was recorded in, in March of 1963. We're going to hear Monk's uh, great 12-bar uh, blues called Blue or Balu Bolivar Baluzar. That's how Monk wrote it and, uh, and, and pronounced it. And that's going to be followed by another Monk composition called Skippy. So here then is the Steve Lacey Roswell Rudd Quartet. Thank you. 
two Thelonious Monk compositions played by this uh, incredible quartet led by soprano saxophone master Steve Lacey. And we heard Roswell Rudd, his erstwhile partner on trombone, the great Henry Grimes on bass, and Dennis Charles on drums. And the first tune was Blue Bolivar Blues, or as Monk would pronounce it, Balu Bolivar Baluzar. And the second tune was called Skippy. And uh, both um, quirky monk compositions. All of this was recorded at a uh, funny... Uh, Lacey actually uh, described this club. I won't get into his explanation of it, but it was a strange club in, in New York called the Phase Two with all kinds of weird people in there. But uh, this uh, little band had a gig there, and they played this music, and... and People seem to like it. Um, all of this was recorded in March of 1963 um, at the Phase Two, and it was released on an album on M&M Records called School Days and eventually compiled um, on a CD as well. So uh, very important uh, little band that uh, was together for uh, a time in, in New York City, led by one of the great voices of the soprano saxophone, the late and wonderful Steve Lacey. Speaking of saxophone players, Sonny Stitt. Sonny Stitt had a contract with Prestige Records. Uh, Sonny was, um, got into some trouble in uh, the late 40s, and he was incarcerated for uh, a time, uh, owing to uh, drugs, of course, and in he was a uh, he be, he had begun his career and established himself as as one of the um, great modern voices of the alto saxophone, the alto saxophone, and in prison. Uh, while Stitt was there, um, musicians generally were uh, treated reasonably well um, in 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 prisons, and of course. Uh, as primitive as the prison system is, they like to um, occupy people so, so that they don't get into trouble and start fighting one another and causing riots and all that sort of stuff. And musicians were usually pretty passive. Give them an instrument and, and, and they'll play all day or form a band and, and so on. And um, I know for a fact that there were some incredible prison bands um, comprised of, of some great, great musicians. Anyway, we won't get into that, but what happened with, with Sonny Stitt was when he was busted and, and, and went into um, uh, jail, um, he, he got into a band, and uh, all they had was a beaten-up old tenor saxophone. Um, and, of course, Stitt was already a master of the smaller alto saxophone, and he started playing the tenor saxophone as bad as this instrument was. Of course, um, Sonny Stitt soon mastered it and, and liked it. And uh, so when he got out, um, he, of course, bought a very good, a brand-new Selmer, and uh, added that to his uh, uh, instrumental arsenal. So he had alto, alto saxophone and tenor. And, of course, he began playing and recording quite a bit on tenor saxophone when he was uh, released uh, from his uh, incarceration. 
Later on, he added baritone saxophone, too, for a, a, a little while. And then he got tired of lugging around that huge horn uh, and got rid of it. And it, it's too bad because he was a, a monster on baritone, too. Anyway, that's the story. So um, um, these are some recordings, uh, some of the earliest recordings on, uh, of Sonny Stitt playing the tenor saxophone, and he sounds magnificent on these. Now, he had this contract with Prestige Records, which was a small label at the time, run by a man named Bob Weinstock. So uh, Stitt had this recording session, and he told Weinstock, because uh, Bob asked him uh, well, who he was going to come in with, so he said, well, I've got Curly Russell on bass, and I've got Max Roach on drums. And, of course, Weinstock smiled and said, yeah, that's cool. And I've got Bud Powell on piano. And, of course, Weinstock was like, ooh, Bud Powell. God, uh, you know, um, he, he, he's got some problems. Um, sometimes, you know, he won't play and, and uh, et cetera. Um, and, of course, it was well known that, that, that Bud Powell had, had some uh, um, severe mental problems. Sonny Stead said, just leave Bud Powell to me. I can handle him. I can take care of him. And so they made a whole series of um, wonderful recordings for, for uh, Prestige Records, Sonny Stitt and Bud Powell. And some of the Powell's finest playing is um, on these recordings. And uh, Sonny Stitt certainly was able to handle uh, Bud Powell um, beautifully. And uh, they made some great music. So we're going to hear some of it. Um, the people involved, Sonny Stitt on tenor saxophone, Bud Powell on piano, uh, Curly Russell on bass, and Max Roach on drums. And we're going to hear um, four tunes from the first session they recorded together. And the first tune is an up-tempo thing called Odds, All God's Children Got Rhythm, written by Gus Kahn and some other people. And then we're going to move to a, a tune that Sonny Stitt wrote uh, called Sunny Side. And then we're going to hear um, a variation of a, a, a great ballad called These Foolish Things, but there's no melody on, played on here, and Sonny just calls it Sunset. And the final tune is uh, dedicated to Bud Powell, and it's called Bud's Blues. And as magnificent as Sonny Stitt plays, the piano solos on here are unbelievable. And, of course, it's the great Bud Powell. What else can you say?
from 1949, December 1949, Sonny Stitt on tenor saxophone and Bud Powell on piano with Curly Russell on bass and Max Roach on drums. We heard four classic tracks from that recording session. And that's all she wrote, just those four tunes. And, uh, of course, they were issued on Prestige Records. And we heard uh, the first tune was uh, All God's Children Got Rhythm. Second tune was called Sunnyside. And the third tune was called Sunset. That was based on a, um, a ballad called These Foolish Things and uh, cleverly disguised by Sonny Stitt. So they wouldn't have to pay royalties, you see. Small label. <laughs> so um, he just played variations on, on the tune, which is great. And the final tune was a thing uh, called Bud's Blues, dedicated to, of course, the great Bud Powell on piano. And as I mentioned before, Sonny Stitt, um, the, the, the um, owner of Prestige Records, was kind of leery about uh, having Bud Powell uh, on, on the date because of his uh, rather inconsistent uh, behavior sometimes. And uh, Sonny Stitt said, just leave Bud Powell to me. I'll take care of him. And, of course, uh, a great combination, Sonny Stitt and Bud Powell. And uh, they did make a, another recording session uh, a few weeks later, which we'll hear uh, some other time. And um, we'll, we'll play that, too, with the same people. And it's just as great. We are going to tell you that you are listening to CITR FM 101.9 or on your computer, www.citr.ca. And, of course, my name is uh, Gavin Walker. I have to look up my ID, figure out my name. Anyway... (laughs) <laughs> sometimes sometimes uh, you can get absent-minded, and uh, you can even forget that if you get distracted or something. So um, that's it. And this is, of course, The Jazz Show. And we'll be right back after a, a couple of uh, brief messages here with some music by Chet Baker and Paul Desmond together. Hey, it's Cynthia from The Bike Kitchen. We moved, but we are still nearby. The Bike Kitchen is now located on East Mall in the trailer between Irving K. Barber and Brock Hall. Come down and check out our selection of used bikes, work on your bike with our tools, or get a tune-up by one of our pro mechanics. We have a one- or two-day turnaround on all tune-ups. Check out our website, thebikekitchen.com, for more information about our services and prices. Without the help and support of our friends, we here at CITR wouldn't be able to bring you all the great music, art, cinema, and culture that you love. Thanks to the long-standing support from the Rio Theatre, we are able to keep you informed on all the great artists, films, and everything else coming to town there. For all the current information about who and what's playing at the Rio Theatre, visit their website at www.riotheatre.ca. are going to play some music by two proponents of cool jazz in the best sense of the word. And I'm talking about the great 
Chet Baker on trumpet, and Paul Desmond on alto saxophone. These, both of these musicians loved melody, which was very evident in their playing, and, and uh, uh, played with such uh, beautiful melodic content. And it's, it's too bad that they didn't record together more often. They were, uh, they were friends, uh, but they never really got into the recording studio for a lot of recordings. Um, but these are very valuable. So this is Chet, of course, on trumpet with Paul Desmond on alto saxophone. Bob James is playing electric piano here. Ron Carter on bass and Steve Gadd on drums. And we're going to hear two tunes. The first one is uh, an old standard called Tangerine. And the second one is an old standard called Autumn Leaves. So here then, Chet Baker and Paul Desmond together. Thank you. 
couple of really fine pieces with Chet Baker and Paul Desmond. And it's too bad they didn't record together more often because that was a, a wonderful meeting and um, very lyrical concepts uh, on their instruments. Beautiful sound and really nice blend uh, with the both of them. Chet on trumpet, Paul Desmond, alto saxophone, Bob James on electric piano, Ron Carter on bass, and Steve Gadd on drums and two standard tunes. The first one was uh, Tangerine, and the second one was, of course, Autumn Leaves. Now, here's a gentleman um, that uh, is an amazing player, and I'm talking about Nathaniel Adderley, Nat Adderley, Cannonball Adderley's brother. And the late Mr. Adderley, along with Joe Henderson on tenor saxophone, uh, Herbie Hancock is playing on here, and he's the composer of this piece, Bob Cranshaw on bass, and Roy McCurdy on drums, and we're going to hear Herbie's composition, very famous tune called Cantaloupe Isle.
We heard a couple of pieces here that uh, featured Nat Adderley, Cannonball Adderley's brother. The first one was uh, a set or a tune that was uh, led by Nat, and it's from an album called Saying Something, and uh, that featured Nat on cornet and Joe Henderson on tenor saxophone, Herbie Hancock on piano, Bob Cranshaw on bass, and... Roy McCurdy on drums, and we heard Hancock's famous tune called Cantaloupe Island. Then the second tune was a Nat Adderley composition called Work Song, and that was probably his most famous composition, and that was played by a big band that was uh, put together by bassist Ray Brown, and it featured Cannonball Adderley on alto saxophone, and we also heard Nat again on cornet solo on uh, on the work song and of course uh, a whole bunch of wonderful people in uh, in Ray's Ray Brown's big band one of the great bass players of course and uh, uh, Ray um, of course uh, being uh, one of the great leaders as well not only on his instrument but he was a, a very influential uh, musician. So that's from uh, an album that came out on uh, Verve Records and Ray Brown and his big band featuring Cannibal Adderley. Anyway, that wraps up uh, our show this evening. Uh, we'd like to thank you for being out there. We're actually going to, we, if the world doesn't end on the 23rd, which it's supposed to, uh, it's supposed to go out with a bang, but uh, <laughs> I think we'll still be here. I have a funny feeling that we'll still be here, and we'll definitely be here next Monday. Even if the world ends, we'll be here. And the jazz feature next Monday is one of Miles Davis's greatest recordings with his second great quintet called Miles Smiles. That's the name of the album. And we'll be hearing that album in its entirety. And uh, this is a, a heavy recording and uh, worth checking out if you have never heard it. 
So that's going to be on tap next week on The Jazz Show. So I'd just like to thank you for being out there this evening on behalf of myself, Gavin Walker, and CITR FM 101.9 or on your computer, www.citr.ca. And we'll see you in seven days' time. You take care. Bye-bye. Thank <laughs> you.